I'm going to ask you to be seated. We're going to take a look at that last verse again. I don't know about you, but this verse just carries me away. On that day when freed from sinning. I don't know about you, but I am so tired of sinning. I wish I could just stop. I wish I could just stop, but I don't know. It just everything within me, right? I still hurt Karen all the time. You know, I still say all these stupid things. I still think all these stupid things. I'm all torn towards this stupid stuff. But there's a day coming when I'm going to stand before the Lord and I'm going to be free from sinning. (laughs) And I'm going to see his face I'm going to fall down before him, going to jump into his arms, probably both at the same time, don't know how it's all going to work. But I'm going to be free from sin forever. And though my sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. I will be washed in the blood of the Lamb, and then will I sing his sovereign grace. Oh, my goodness, and it'll be loud, and it'll be like, amen. And next, come, my Lord. Even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Bring these promises to pass. Oh, God, you know us. You know our hearts, and you know the battle. You know the battle that rages on this earth for our souls. Jesus, you took on flesh, and you walked this planet. You were tempted in every way, just the way we are. So you know. You know how we feel. You know the draw that sin has on our lives. And you know the power that you've given us to resist. Oh God, how I thank you. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the freedom from sin. I thank you for your word. God, you know each one of us in this room. You know our hearts. You know us well. You know what this last week has caused. You know what, what we're feeling, if it's anxious or, or anger or frustration or joy or whatever it may be, Lord. You know each one of us. And as Luke was writing this book of Acts to Theopolis, you looked forward and knew that at this moment in time, we'd be meeting together to look at this chapter at these verses, at this account. And you knew how you would use it to touch each one of our lives. So we open ourselves to you, God. If you thought it was that significant, help us to think so as well. Take away the distractions and the clutter which would keep us from hearing from you. Help us to open our hearts to you today, God. Maybe in ways we never have before. 
as we look forward to that day when we see you face to face, free forever from sin. Thank you, Jesus, for making that possible. Pray this in your name. Amen. 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 I release the kids through grade four, even as we look at Acts chapter 17 together. Acts chapter 17. My voice is a little grovelly. You probably have noticed, but with God's grace, we're going to make it through. And maybe for God's grace, we'll stop early, but don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Amen. First Thessalonians, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 17. We'll get to First Thessalonians in a bit. Acts chapter 17, starting right with the first verse. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond, and they let him go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him there as soon as possible. As I've been reading this text and studying it for today and Looking at it, I, I just, the question that keeps coming to my mind is why? Why? Why in the world would people respond this way? Why would these Jews in, in Thessalonica stir up a whole riot and hire all these people to come out and, and make a stand against, against the truth that God loves them? Why, why would people respond to the love of God in such an angry way? And then why would others not? Why would others receive it and, and understand it? What makes the difference? Why do people respond the way they do 
to the love of God as demonstrated in the gospel. And declaring the truth of God's love will bring a response. As we continue in the book of Acts, we, we look over and over again in this amazing transition time. This time that we can't even begin to put our heads around as, as, as God is beginning to reveal his plan for redemption in, in a new way as salvation history unfolds, as the redemptive plan becomes more and more clear, as, as Jesus comes and the new covenant is brought into the nation of Israel, into the Jewish people, and as that new covenant begins and, and there's this transition time, what does this mean and what does it look like? And Paul is in the middle of this in so many ways. And Luke, as he records this, as he sometimes travels with Paul and then sometimes travels away from him, catching this, this moment of transition that so much informs what we do and how we believe we respond to God. The gospel declares the truth of God's love Paul and his companions pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia and they come to Thessalonica. And it's amazing because you just have to wonder, how did Paul keep going? Right? I mean, as you read the book of Acts, it's like everywhere he goes, he's getting, he's facing persecution for the message that he's bringing. And he faces persecution from the Jews and he faces persecution from the Gentiles. When he writes the letter to the church in Thessalonica, he talks to them about, you know the problems we had in Philippi, how they were treated so badly there. But it doesn't stop him. It doesn't stop him because he's empowered and he understands that he's been given the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that every person could come to a place where they could have a right standing with God. They could be righteous in God's eyes and in his presence. Paul, I believe, has been given this, this awareness of the pain that is in the lives of people who don't know this truth. And it gives him an unbelievable burden to make it known. And so when he comes to Thessalonica, he goes to the Jewish synagogue Rob, help us understand that this call into Macedonia was a call into Europe, and so they went into Philippi, and then as he got into Philippi, he, he went from there and went down to Thessalonica, and Thessalonica to Berea, and then Berea to the coast, and then down to Athens. And so <clears throat> the gospel continuing to move. Thessalonica and Berea are about 45 miles apart, and, and so he gets into Thessalonica, and the first thing he does is goes to a Jewish synagogue. He goes to the Jewish synagogue. See, Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul understood and knew very well that the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. See, this new covenant promises, new covenant that was made to the Jewish people. We're grafted into that as Gentiles, but it's important that the Jewish people understand this first. And so he goes to the synagogue for three days, uh, three Sabbath days. Now, we don't know if that's three consecutive Sabbath days or if it was three Sabbath days spread over a period of time. Luke doesn't give us those kinds of details. But he does tell us exactly what Paul was doing in the synagogue. He was reasoning 
with the, with the people in the synagogue, the Jewish people from scriptures, explaining and proving Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead, and then proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's doing that from the scriptures. Now, at the point that he's doing this is the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. So Paul is taking the Old Testament and proving that Jesus is the Messiah, helping them to understand, explaining and reasoning with them to help them understand that this Jesus who suffered and died and rose again is actually the Messiah they were waiting for. Now, this would have been so hard for them to grasp. And we need to be careful when we look at this because we can look at this through Western eyes and, and through eyes that are happening that are here 2,000 years later. But at the time that Paul is talking about this, remember that until God revealed this to Paul, Paul didn't understand it. Paul didn't grab hold of this righteousness. Paul didn't, didn't repent and turn and, and take hold of this righteousness. Um, until it was revealed to him by God. So he shows them from the Hebrew Scriptures. So this week I spent quite a bit of time going through Old Testament, thinking, wonder what Scriptures he used. What passages did Paul go to in the Old Testament to prove Messiah? Remember when Jesus walked on the road with the disciples from Emmaus, and he, he showed them all through Scripture where he was in there. Did he go to Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or maybe Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, starting at the end of 52. See, my servant will act wisely. This is a passage of Scripture <clears throat> in Isaiah that was written that shows that this servant, this Messiah, must suffer. At the time that Peter was preaching here, or Paul was preaching here, at the time he was talking to the people in Thessalonica, from what we can tell from the, the documents that are remaining, this was a passage of Scripture that, that many felt meant and pointed to the fact that the Messiah would have to suffer. As rabbis wrote on this, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness, and so he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah asks in Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a tender root, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You think of Jesus as he was born. Jesus, God, taking on flesh and coming to earth. And you would think that if God were to come to earth, that the Messiah were to come, the king, if he were to come, you think he would come in great splendor. You can imagine, right, the pomp and the circumstance that the world had come to accept and to understand if a king comes comes in, you can, you can see it. I mean, remember the royal wedding. I mean, that had to cost at least $10.25. But as you look at it and you think of the splendor and this majesty, and you think that's how you would think Messiah would come, but no, he came in such a way that he wasn't even recognized. 
There was no majesty or beauty. Nothing in his appearance that we should even desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. He was one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. So the people, when, they, when Jesus was on earth, they looked at him and they held him in low esteem. And you could imagine... If you're there in the synagogue in, in Thessalonica, it would look different than this because the only people who would be in here would be Jewish men. The women and, 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 and the Gentiles would all be on the outside listening in. And you can imagine Paul talking about this and saying this Messiah, Jesus, who died on the cross because the cross, you realize, is the dividing point, right? Right? Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, he says that the cross is the dividing point, that for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. But for others, it's, the, it's, it's perishing. The cross is, is a signal of perishing. So people are divided into two in God's economy. It's either those who come to the cross, receive the message, and receive the power of God, or it's those who come to the cross, hear the message, and turn away from it. The cross is the dividing line. And so you can imagine as Paul is talking to this audience in the synagogue and he's talking to them and he's saying, the one who died on the cross is the Messiah. Scandalous. It's, it's scandalous to even think that that could be the case. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. But we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Imagine Paul reading that. It was still fresh in people's minds. But we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've each turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. See, we, we look at this, and, and we turn our own way. Each of us, each one of us, have turned from God and turned to sin. Every one of us. And yet, the iniquity of us all was laid on him. So as Paul went through and, and unpacked this chapter, if this is the one he used to show that the servant would have to suffer. And then did he go to Psalm 16, much in the same way Peter did on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Shavuot. Did, did he go to that passage? <clears throat> did he talk about the rising of the Messiah? You will not let your Holy One see decay. Did he talk about how he had risen from the dead? Did he talk about how he would come again? The Feast of Tabernacles is wrapping up right now. The incredible thing about the Feast of Tabernacles, it's the last of the feasts in the cycle in the fall. And the amazing thing about, one of the amazing things about the Feast of Tabernacles, it talks about the temporary nature of life on earth and, and, and looking at that. But one of the things that I've come to learn is that in Zechariah chapter 14, it says that when, when Jesus comes back a second time, 
that all the nations of the world will go to Jerusalem where he reigns. All the nations will participate in the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a feast that will continue through the millennial reign of Christ. Did he talk about that? Did he talk about, about the fulfillment of each one of the festivals found in Christ? Through it all, as he shared the unbelievable truth that this God of the Hebrew Scriptures who loves his people demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love in that. That as I turned from him, all we like sheep have turned away. As I turned from him, he still turned toward me. He still turns towards you. See, the gospel is the demonstration of God's love for your salvation, but also for you to be able to live every minute of the day. Have you come to know the truth of who Jesus is? Have you come to a place in your life where you've realized that your sin has placed you under the wrath of God, but that God has demonstrated his love for you by sending Jesus to be the penalty for your sin? Some did. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. See, hard hearts reject God's love and they're not interested in truth. Hard hearts reject God's love. As I've looked at this passage and I've, I've wondered about the, the hearts of these people, these are Jews, they're, they're jealous, they're zealous more than likely, and they're zealous for what they believe is true. And again, they're in a transition period. And there's a legalistic Judaism that has taken hold in the intertestamental period. It's a legalistic Judaism that Jesus spoke about when he talked to some of the Pharisees and, and talked to them how they were adding things that didn't need to be added and, and in so adding those things missed the truth of what, what was actually God's intention for people to understand. And they had held on to these things that they had added and they held on to them so tightly that they became a truth that they held to. And because they became a truth for them, it was important that that became a truth for everybody. And so they had to hold that truth for themselves. And they had to make sure that that truth was one that that they made proclaim to everybody else. I don't know about you, but I can tend to fixate on things. Can you? You know, every once in a while you, you start fixating on something, you know, and and, and it starts innocently enough, but, but something's going on in your life and you begin to think about it and then you begin to think about it a little more and then you begin to think about it a little more and then, and then you begin to think about it a lot and then pretty soon every time you're thinking, that's what you're thinking about. Some of you are doing that right now. Not the people who are laughing. But it overtakes you, doesn't it? Because it becomes truth to you. 
And when those things in my life become truth to me and I begin to fixate on them, all of a sudden the truth that I need to hear, the truth of the gospel, the truth that Jesus came to set me free, the truth that I don't need to be defined by things that have defeated me, the truth that I am forgiven, those kinds of truth, if I'm not careful, if I'm fixating on these things in my life, that truth has a hard time breaking through. And I begin to hold on to that truth. And for these people, their hearts were hard. And they, and they rejected the truth. And so what they did is they went out and got some bad characters and, and started making accusations. These men caused trouble all over the world. See Paul and Silas, Barnabas, Timothy, John Mark. They're known. They've been, they've been going at it. And they've been telling the truth of the gospel and people are believing. And that's causing trouble all over the world. People are coming to know the love of Jesus and they're starting to, to live their lives in ways that aren't sinful. That's, that's something to get upset about, isn't it? came across a, a blog that I'd like to share with you. Because even as I say that, even as I say it's something to get alarmed about that people are coming to know the truth of the gospel and are starting to live their ways in our, that aren't sinful, see it in our culture and in our society, that causes a problem, doesn't it? The great challenge of the Roman Empire was binding together many cultures, faiths, and nations under a common banner. This is by Tim Chalice. It's a, a blog called A Sober Warning from the Earliest Christians. As their armies conquered lands stretching from Germany to North Africa, from Spain to Syria, this challenge became increasingly difficult. What could serve as a kind of bond to hold this whole empire together? So the idea here is that the Romans are taking over and they're winning all of these different countries and cultures and lands and everything else, and they're so diverse. So with all that diversity, what could bring unity? The obvious answer, the emperor. He would stand as the living embodiment of the empire so that loyalty to the emperor would be synonymous with loyalty to Rome. And how could such loyalty be displayed? By having every citizen make a sacrifice to him as if he was divine. So Rome did not insist that everyone convert their religion. They merely insisted that every religion add a small homage to the emperor a small act of worship that would serve as a display of their lawyer loyalty to the empire. So the way that the Roman Empire went about bringing unity was when they conquered other nations and other, other cultures and faiths, when they conquered them, they said, you could stay who you are, you just need to add emperor worship to what you're doing. And that brought a unity. But Christians refused to do this. Their ultimate and exclusive loyalty to Jesus Christ precluded them from making the offering. And it was this refusal that was the source of so much persecution. So, when the Jewish people brought Paul and Silas, they couldn't bring them, so they brought Jason and the other believers, what was the accusation that they brought to them? They are saying there's another king all right, so what they're doing is they're bringing an accusation against the believers that they're not worshiping Caesar. Remember that at the crucifixion of Christ, they said, We have no king but Caesar. 
The Christian, um, I'm sorry, it's crucial to understand that from the Roman perspective, the persecution was not primarily about religion, but about politics. The Christians' unwillingness to add this small element to their worship made them appear disloyal to the empire, and, or to the emperor and to his empire. So they have very little to do with religion. By failing to make their offering to Caesar, they were not failing a religious test as much as a test of good citizenship. They were refusing to participate in the ceremony that signified the unity of the empire. Thus, they were persecuted as disloyal citizens who hindered rather than strengthened their society. Okay, I know this is a little heady, but it's later in the morning. We're good. So now here's where, here's where we do well to learn some lessons for our own day. Okay, because so what? We don't have an emperor, right? Well, maybe we do. Maybe we do. <clears throat> Our societies are attempting to maintain unity through a growing diversity. Okay, so our society, our culture, has a growing diversity. Have you noticed it? It's a growing diversity. And society is trying to find out what is it that can unite us. Because at the same time, society has abandoned or overthrown most of the elements that have traditionally bonded us together. So even in the midst of this diversity, there were things that used to bond us together. Whether you were in church or out of church, there were things that you could say that everybody would agree on. There was a unity that was there, and that's, that's been abandoned or overthrown. It leaves us searching for a new means of fostering and expressing unity. The unifying principle that has risen to the top is tolerance. I don't know if you remembered, maybe 20, 25 years ago, when the conversation about tolerance began, and, and that we needed to be tolerant of things. At the time that that um, started, it was uh, uh, calling for respect despite disagreement, but now there's a new kind of tolerance that's centered around modern sexual ethics and mores. Today, it calls for far more than just respect despite disagreement. We are considered tolerant only when we advocate for and celebrate new understandings of marriage, sexuality, and gender. Those who refuse to celebrate what they believe God forbids are seen as disloyal to the unifying principle of society. They are seen to be hindering rather than helping the strength and growth of this new empire. Okay, <coughs> I'm not getting political here. We don't need to do that because we're about Jesus, all right? But we need to understand something. We need to understand that we're moving into a day and age when, when just like what was happening here in Thessalonica and Berea, that, that, that the gospel was being, was being attacked by hard-hearted people because it was an offense against the empire. So it is with us with the gospel today. That as we come forth with this gospel of love and truth, that the touch of God in the lives of every person, we're seen as intolerant, which is seen as attacking the empire or the emperor of our age. And so we can expect a growing level of, of harshness in the response to this from those who have hard hearts. Because hard-hearted people will not listen to truth. They have truth that they've discovered on their own. And it's why 60 million babies have been aborted. 
And I understand that even as I say that, some of you in this room might have made a choice for that. And that's not meant to bring any sort of judgment on you because Jesus is bigger than any, any choice you've made that's wrong. But the empire tells us that it's a woman's choice and that we need to embrace that. Instead of saying that all life is life. And it's not just abortion. It's the redefinition of marriage. It's the redefinition of gender. These things are things that cannot find their way into our setting. It's not because we're haters. It's because we're lovers. We love people too much to let them live in sin that hurts them. God demonstrates his own love for us. Listen, the message of the gospel is the absolute truth. That God's love touches even those who are rejecting him so that they could be set free. They could experience the joy of knowing the relationship with God that they've been designed to have and hard hearts will not receive that. So what do we do? We pray that God will soften hearts. We continue to speak the truth of the loving message of God. The truth that life begins at conception is not meant to be an a chastisement against a woman. It's meant to be a, an absolute truth of the fact that every life is sacred. Yours, mine, everyone. Because of God's handiwork. The marriage is designed for a man and a woman because that's the way God designed it to be because it's the absolute healthiest way. It is the only way. And we cannot begin to absorb the conversation of the empire in such a way that we lose the message of the gospel. We can't do that. And the Christians, the early Christians, revealed that to us. Soft hearts seek the truth of God's love. So we pray that God will bring soft hearts. Just real quickly. We look at this passage and we think, boy, I'd, given the choice, I'd rather be in Berea. Because in Thessalonica, it would have been hard to come to know the truth. But in Berea, it looks like it would have been a lot easier. God didn't preserve a letter to the church in Berea for us, but he did preserve a letter to the church in, in Thessalonica. And in that letter, it gives a little bit more clarity to this first paragraph. And I encourage you to read it sometime during the week. It talks about it in your small group questions there. Paul says, we know, brothers and sisters, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 
Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became, you, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with a joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God became known everywhere. See, this church in Thessalonica, this paragraph that Luke records for us, what he doesn't record is that the power of the Holy Spirit came in as well, and people's lives were changed. And all over the world, the message became known through the church in Thessalonica that God is a God who saves. So what? How can I be ready to be bold with the declaration of God's love, even to those who may bitterly oppose that love? How can I continually reach out with the truth of that? Remember Bob, burden, Pray for a burden for the lost, an opportunity to share, and then a boldness when that opportunity comes. Maybe add an S on the end. Pray for softening of Bob's heart, that he'll be ready to hear the truth when it comes to him. Oh God, thank you. Thanks for the truth of this message, Lord. We live in a, <clears throat> a culture and a society that longs for us to embrace things that, that we can't embrace if we embrace you. Your love won't allow us to embrace those things. Your love is too deep to allow us to embrace those things. God, help us not be swayed by the voices of hard-hearted people. Keep us focused on your word and your truth in our lives. I pray this in your name. Amen. If you're here today and you're wondering what it means to have a relationship with Christ, maybe, maybe something I said today it causes you to want to move into that relationship or maybe you think you've done that but you've never fully understood it. I'd like to invite you to come up and I'd, I'd love to put the book in your hand and then hook you up with someone who'll go through this book with you. So come up after the service. I encourage you to stand, please, now and hear God's good word for you. The benediction that Gabe shared a little earlier. To him who, keep, who is able to keep you from falling <clears throat> and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Oh, I release you to a week of work, witness, and worship. God bless you.